If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Devraga Personal Finance, episode number 48. In this episode, I thought we'll discuss about the two main concepts called risk and volatility. They're often used synonymously, particularly in the media and the financial mainstream media, but they're very different concepts indeed, and it's important for you to understand that and try and apply it in your own personal finance situation. Now, the basic framework of my podcast channel, for those of you that have been listening, you'll know this already, and I do use a lot of repetition, but just to reiterate for the newcomers here, it's about the pay-yourself concept. Always try and save up to 20% of your after-tax income, Put that 20% money away straight off the top so you can never use it. Invest that money, always reinvest the dividends, and do it forever, and always automate the process wherever possible. If you do this, it's likely that over the long term, 20, 30, or 40 years later, you will end up with more wealth than what it was thought to be imaginable. With that, it gives you choices, and it means you can live the life you want, and more importantly, help those around you that are significant in your life. Now, a couple of things before we go on to the main topic. Um, there was a listener question uh, on Facebook um, uh, who wants to remain anonymous, and that's completely fine. But they have given me permission to discuss this question in the podcast episode. And the question was relatively simple. They said that, would it be a good idea if they told their employer to withhold more taxes with their payroll, um, such that after the year of taxation, when they applied for a tax refund, they would then get a lump sum refund because they've actually paid more tax than what's required. So they sort of wanted me to address this question to see whether it would be a wise decision because it's kind of like a savings plan in their mind. So you pay more tax over the year and then get a bit of a return at the end of the year when you lodge your taxes. Now, my sort of feeling about that is you'd be surprised. There's a lot of people probably that are doing this, and there are some of you listening to this that are probably doing this. But in my view, I don't think that's a good strategy because the money that you are giving away literally freely to the tax department is essentially being returned to you 12 months later by the tax department. So essentially what you're doing is you're loaning out your money to the tax department at no interest. And if you go back and listen to my episode on inflation, it means that after 12 months, the money that you've loaned out is actually worth less than what it was worth at the time that you gave it to the tax department. So in other words, not only are you losing interest because you're not charging interest on that money to the tax department, you're giving it for free, you're actually losing more money than what you gave out because you're going to get 3% less in terms of the value of the money than what you actually loaned out. Now, why is that? Because in one year, due to inflation, on average, inflation is between 2 and 3% a year, your money a year later is worth less 
than what it was worth when you actually gave it to the tax person, right? So in my view, it, it, it just does not make economic sense and personal finance sense to loan money out to people for free, which you won't do. So why would you do that and loan money out to the government or the tax department? That's just a silly thing to do. Um, and I think you'd, you'd find that when you talk to people, a lot of people do this uh, because they feel that it's a very safe strategy of savings. Now, if you're in a very generous mood, what you should probably do is rather than asking your payroll to deduct more tax than what you need to be deducted, just take that extra money and put it away into an investment or a savings account. Or if you've got a debt, even better, pay off your debt, whether it's mortgage debt even, even if it's only 3% mortgage interest. So again, you are instantly earning a 3% return if you pay that money into the mortgage rather than losing 3% over 12 months if you give that money away to the tax person, purely because of inflation. So my sort of view is don't do that. Don't pay more tax than what you need to and then try and claim it all back at the end of the year. I think it's not a good strategy. You're actually not gaining any money out of it and you're actually losing money. And how much money that you lose is based on what the inflation is in that 12 months. So hopefully to that person listening, uh, I've, I've actually told them uh, the answer. Um, but if you are doing this and you're listening to this, stop, don't do it. Um, it's not a good idea to loan money to anyone, let alone the tax man, money for free. Now, the second thing I wanted to talk about is an article that I read in the Age newspaper, uh, which is Fairfax Media. And the title of the article was, Why You Shouldn't Cut Up Your Credit Card or Even Reduce the Limit. Now, I was like, well, that's an interesting sort of title because basically, you know, consumer debt in general is not a great thing. So, um, you know, the one thing that I talk about when it comes to personal finance, uh, which ties people who are trying to swim towards financial freedom is consumer debt. Don't get consumer debt. Consumer debt like credit cards, which are not paid off in full every month, car loans, store credit card loans, are never a good idea. No matter what comparison rate you may get, no matter how many points you get for that credit card or how many frequent fly miles you get, it's never a good idea. Consumer debt is always 100% bad, which is why I was so interested in this article. So I was rather surprised when the author states not to give up your credit card. I think it was more an article that was aimed at senior citizens uh, of Australia. Now, I have a credit card, so, you know, slightly hypocritical in me sort of preaching this, but what I'm trying to say is don't have a credit card if you think you're not going to be able to pay it off every month in full because the interest rates on those credit cards is, you know, prohibitively expensive. Um, I have a very modest limit on my credit card. Um, the ease of use, the transactional value is what I like. I don't care about the points although it was a bit of a gimmick when I used to pay my ATO taxes using my credit card and earn triple points when it was offered back in the day. Now, that points hack was awesome when it was available, but that loophole is long gone with personal credit cards. But I think if you have a business credit card, I think the loophole is still there. But I think the points hack in terms of getting triple points, etc., that perk has long gone. But I pay it off every month. In fact, I pay it off every fortnight because I've never paid interest on my credit card. 
So again, credit cards per se are not always bad, but if you're not managing that debt, if you're not paying it off every fortnight or every month, then it can be absolutely, uh, you know, terrible, terrible thing for your personal finances. Now, this article, which was um, published, I think, uh, on the 4th of July, goes on to explain that sometimes if the income earner is the principal credit card holder and there is an additional card holder on that account, the additional card holder technically doesn't have a credit card. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because if the principal card holder dies, so again, this article is aimed at senior citizens, then the additional card holder loses the credit card account. Because remember, the additional card holder is actually linked to the main credit card holder's account. So what? Well, it just means that if they try and apply for one, that is the additional card holder then goes back to the bank and wants to apply for a credit card, they may not get a credit card since the tightening of the lending criteria since July the 1st, 2019. Now, for those of you that are not aware, in this financial year, the new rules are stating that you should be able to clear a credit card within three years if you want one. And if the bank thinks you can't clear that credit card in three years, then they won't grant you a credit card. That's the new rule. Now, this affects women and retirees disproportionately, okay? Especially if you don't have an income. So then the article goes on to suggest that everyone should have an emergency fund, which, you know, I've done a whole podcast episode on that, which totally agree. But if they don't have an emergency fund, then it goes on to say that having a credit card is a good strategy, a good idea for emergencies, provided they clear it every month. Now, we've already established that having a credit card is not always a bad thing, but if you don't clear it every month, then yeah, it's just a nightmarish thing. So what they're saying is, for senior citizens, to have a credit card is a good strategy if they don't have an emergency fund, provided they can clear it every month. Now, it, it, it doesn't sound right because if someone was disciplined enough to clear their credit card every month, then why wouldn't they be disciplined enough to have a basic emergency fund or a six-month emergency fund? Now, that's quite contradictory, which is why I thought this article was, you know, to be honest, a bit of BS. Then to frankly encourage to acquire a credit card and go into consumer debt is probably a dangerous thing to say, especially for those people that are not disciplined enough in the first place. Now, I don't think credit cards are bad overall, so don't get me wrong. They have their benefits, they have good transactional value, and they have ease of use benefits. But these people that the article is aimed for seniors and people that have low or no income, so the last thing they want to do is apply for a credit card, particularly we've established that these people don't have enough discipline to be able to manage that credit card debt. Now, if you've got discipline, then you should have an emergency fund in the first place, in which case, why would you need a credit card? So that's where I sort of lost it in the article. So the principles are sound. It should always be this. Spend less than you earn, always have an emergency fund, be disciplined, and you're unlikely to need a credit card in the first place rather than encouraging consumer debt in your senior years. That's what I take exception to in this article. I get the whole using the credit card for benefits, for miles and for points, and then using your own savings for offset account and paying off the credit card at the end of the month. This is what I do. I totally get that concept. But remember, if you have no income, have limited discipline, then you're not going to be able to do that. So in which case, you better build good habits first before you go in and get a credit card. So that's what I'll take as exception to in this article. So the whole article sort of seems a little bit contradictory. So finally, it says having a credit card reduces your borrowing capacity for the home loan, but be careful reducing that limit because you may never get it back. So what they're saying is if you have a high limit of credit card, 
Don't reduce it, uh, even if it affects your borrowing capacity for a home loan. Keep the limit because you may never get that limit back. Now, here's the deal. If you're disciplined again, it kind of doesn't matter what credit limit you have. I don't have a very big credit limit and I'm relatively disciplined and my income is relatively good. You can simply pay the money you have into your credit card and use it as normal. It doesn't affect you. You can put the credit card into you know, underdraft to put it above what the limit is so you can actually buy big things. I've done this. I bought cars using my credit card, which had a, which had a limit of just $6,800. I've actually bought $50,000, $70,000 cars using cash and just used a credit card for the for the miles and also the points. So let me be clear, credit cards are not always bad, but don't go out and get one if you're not disciplined. It's asking for trouble and a potential disaster in the making. Okay, so that's my rant about this particular article. Now for the topic, uh, the main topic, what is risk and what is volatility and why isn't it the same? Now, it's a commonly mixed up concept in personal finance and economics and the media often use it synonymously, risk and volatility. Uh, you just have to watch, you know, CNBC or something like that. And they're just, you know, going crazy about the markets. Or if you watch the Australian, uh, you know, mainstream media, they just go crazy about the volatility in the markets, you know. But let's talk a little bit about what is risk, okay? Risk is a probability that an investment will result in permanent or long-term loss of value. Volatility, on the other hand, is merely how rapidly or significantly an investment tends to change in price over a period of time. Let's go through that again. Risk is a probability that an investment will result in permanent or long-lasting loss of value. Volatility, on the other hand, is merely how rapidly or significantly an investment tends to change in price over a period of time. So, an investment may be volatile, but the risk associated with that investment may not actually be that high. Let's go into these concepts a bit deeper and use some examples to prove this point. Now, a couple of ways of looking at, uh, you know, volatility is volatility is merely the measurement of price, whereas risk is the measurement of value. So price is something you pay for an investment, but value is what you get for that investment. Now, this is a very important concept to understand and hence why volatility and risk are very different concepts. They're not the same. They should not be used synonymously. Um, so when you say to someone and they say, no, nah, it's too volatile, it's too risky, you stop them and you say, I'm sorry, those two concepts are not the same. And you can quote this episode. In other words, if you can master the difference between the two, then theoretically, if you can differentiate between the price and the value then you can identify investments which have a low price and have a high value, which means you can profit from the difference between the two. And that's why risk and volatility are very important concepts to master. Now, let's look at, let's look at what happens in real life. Let's, let's take a recession. Um, so let's look at what happens during a recession uh, and have a look at the volatility and risk factors, okay? During the recession back in 2008 and nine. The businesses lost a lot of money, which means they reduce their employees because they don't have enough money to pay for labor, so they start sacking people or making people redundant. The reason they do that is because they make less money, and this means there's less money for investment into expansion of the business. So it's a chain reaction. 
So businesses lose money by not having enough customers. They make less money. They start firing people, start making people redundant, and there's less money overall for investment into expansion of the business. Bear with me on this one. Depending on the type of business, their stock value may become volatile during that time. But because their fundamentals are quite good, their value might still be very good, and therefore the risk is relatively minimal. So even during the financial crisis, the volatility might be crazy high, but the risk might actually be relatively modest. So let me use a real-life example. For example, during times of stress and recession, economic recession, you still need to eat, okay? You're not going to go out and have a you know, Michelin-starred meal, but you still need your groceries. You still need your fruit and veggies. You still need your cereal, your staples, your rice, or whatever it is that you eat, okay? So although shares of companies like West Farmers and Woolworths, you know, back in Australia here, may go down, i.e. their volatility may be high, over time, the risk is low because guess what? You still need to eat. You still need to buy food. Consumer staples are being sold through these gigantic grocery stores, which means over time, you're likely to recoup your losses, so your risk over time is lower than that in other businesses. Hopefully that gives you a real-life example of how volatility and risk are different. It really depends on the type of businesses that you want to invest in and buy. This means even though the price changed quite rapidly during the recession for Woolworths and West Marmots, you can go back and have a look at the tracking sheet for these stocks, the risk is relatively low, which means the risk of permanent loss was still very low. Okay, That is why companies which have high volatility at times can still have a relatively low risk over time. Therefore, just because some companies have greater volatility doesn't mean they're riskier which is why it's wrong to assume volatility and risk are the same thing. And this is why when the media use it synonymously, they're actually wrong. Makes me angry. The best strategy, of course, is then identifying companies which have a low volatility and low market risk. Now, we've established in the past that companies that have the strong economic moats, now refer to episode 38, where I discussed the concept of moats in, ge- in general in greater detail, but we've discussed in the past that companies that have strong economic moats tend to have lower risk of permanent loss of capital when you invest in them. Now, a good example of a company with a strong moat is Apple or Amazon, giants of the technology sector, very hard to compete against by sheer size of those companies. That's one of their main economic moats, in addition to their excellent management style. This means investing in such companies installs in it a relatively low risk. Their volatility may be high, depending on the time course of their investment, but over the long term, it's likely you will end up making more money. This is why I always talk about investing for the long term, 20 plus years at the very least. In my case, it's going to be 30 plus, 40 plus years, ideally up to 40 plus years if possible, which truly means that by investing over the long term, if that's possible, um, if you start in your 20s, if you keep investing for the long term, um, then your risk over that long term substantially reduces despite the volatility being substantial in that time as well, because you're probably going to see, you know, four or five market cycles or four or five recessions in that 40 years time. Now, another major strategy to reduce your volatility and market risk 
is to diversify your portfolio. Now, we've talked about diversification in previous episodes. Basically, the concept is simple. Don't put all of your eggs in one basket. Diversification is an easy way to reduce your market risk over time and volatility over time. That's why I think buying the whole market, buying the haystack, rather than looking for the needle, is the way to go. And that's just my humble opinion. I don't buy individual stocks. I buy the index. I buy everything in Australia because I feel that overall, the fundamentals in the Australian stock market is quite sound. Yes, are we going to have a market crash in the future? Of course. Yes, is the market going to go down? Yes, of course. When is it going to happen? Who knows? But is the market going to rebound and go back up again? Yes. How long is that going to take? I don't know. But over the last 10 years, me consistently investing on a fortnightly, monthly basis and automating that process has proved very fruitful. And here we are in 2019, looking at the ASX and All Ordinaries Index at all-time highs, okay, even before the recession hit. So potentially, we're going to break that all-time high very, very shortly. So is volatility a good thing and can it be used to your advantage? Now, in episode 16, I'll talk about investing concepts and principles called dollar cost averaging. If you haven't listened to that episode, go back and listen to it. I think it's an important concept in investing to master. Rather than timing the market, you keep investing into the broadly diversified portfolios over many, many years consistently and take advantage of the highs and lows. And this means you bring the average price of the stock portfolio per share down as much as possible. Now, dollar cost averaging works well at times of market lows because you bring down the average price of the stock market. I'm sorry, average price of the stocks that you own or the broad index that I own, for example. So at times of great volatility then, when the stock prices go down and the market goes down heaps and then rises a bit and then goes down even further, this is the perfect time to dollar cost average. This is an opportune time to buy. Again, when you go to Woolies or Coles or Aldi or whatever shopping center you go to, you see your favorite chocolate bar at 50% off. It's the same chocolate bar. Do you turn around and say, nope, I'm not going to buy that chocolate bar because it's too cheap? Of course not. You're going to buy that chocolate bar. You might actually buy two chocolate bars. In my case, I might actually buy 10 chocolate bars, which is a problem that I'm currently facing at the moment. But that's my personal dietary habits, which are not great. Um, but essentially, when you go and buy that chocolate bar and it's 50% off, why would you not buy more? apart from the fact that it's very unhealthy. But bear with me. You see what I'm trying to say? When the market crashes, that's when you should be investing more. When the you know, market is very volatile and goes up and down and goes down a lot more, great. That's fantastic. That's when you need to invest more. But no one has a crystal ball. So you can't tell when the stock market is going to go down. So as to avoid missing out, you just keep investing regularly over the long term. So when the market crashes, you invest more, but no one knows when the market's going to crash, so you just keep investing and take advantage of it when it does inevitably crash. This means if you keep investing and the market crashes and goes through extreme volatility, you can actually use volatility to your advantage, despite the risk over the long term being relatively minimal. Now, a good example of this is the latter half of 2018, when the ASX plummeted almost 20% and people were screaming, oh, we're in a bear market, everything's going haywire, 
Brexit hasn't been finalised. We've got the US politicians going nuts and there's terrorism and there's wars and Iran's going to fire nuclear weapons and North Korea, Kim Jong-un is misbehaving, etc. The world was going to end. Remember? That was in late 2018. Guess what? It didn't. Now, almost 10 months later, the ASX 200 is knocking on the door of the all-time high record ever. How is that even possible? So, the people that missed the downturn in late 2018 missed out on a huge opportunity. That is, they missed out on profiting from a big market volatility situation. So, in my view, volatility is your friend, especially if you have an investing time horizon of 20, 30, or 40 years, because over that time, your market risk is relatively low. Historically, that's what's happened. In fact, I think the market is too high for me right now. I'm in my 30s, so it's madness that the market is rising. I want it to fall. I want it to crash. This is good for me because I'm going to invest for another 30 years. So why buy things when they're high rather than letting them plummet and then pick up a bargain? Now, if I knew that the market was going to crash, of course I wouldn't invest in it. But I don't know that, so I'm still investing even though the market is going to reach an all-time high very shortly. Now, of course, if you're 65 and you're listening to me saying this in my podcast channel, you're absolutely horrified. You're probably going to turn off this channel and never listen to me again. But you see what I'm saying. When you're young, you want the market to be as low as possible. You want the market to be volatile and lose more money so you can invest more. You get more shares, more units for the same price. Now, in Warren Buffett's famous words, be fearful when others are greedy and be greedy when others are fearful. Given the market is quite high at the moment, one can argue to be a bit more fearful. But in my view, just keep investing. Do it forever. And over time, the market almost always rises. And over time, I'm talking 20, 30, 40 years. So when it comes to risk versus volatility, you should probably think about it like this. Point one, volatility can be your friend, provided you know how to manage it. If you don't know how to manage it, if you get jittery, if you get nervous, if you're going to sell when the market crashes by 10%, then you're not managing volatility very well. Then if you don't manage volatility very well, then you can buy high and sell low, and as a result, it can kill your investments in a retirement nest egg. Point number two, risk, on the other hand, almost always is your enemy. So minimize it at all times. And the way to minimize it is to diversify your investments, diversify your assets, and do it for the long term. So that's about it for this episode. This is podcast episode 48. So let's just recap the main topics of conversation today. Consumer debt is always bad, always bad. Don't allow anyone to tell you otherwise. If you have consumer debt, then pay it off pronto. Stop investing, pay consumer debts off. Credit cards are useful, but it's madness to think you should keep open a credit card because you could have an emergency. The whole point of personal finance is to ensure you can cover your emergency and have an emergency fund for this specifically. So being disciplined. We talked about risk. What is it? Risk is a probability that an investment will result in permanent or long-lasting loss of value. We talked about volatility. Volatility is merely how rapidly or significantly an investment tends to change in price over a period of time. Point five, something that is volatile is not always risky and vice versa. The correlation between volatility and risk is not always linear. Point six, 
Volatility can be a friend of yours, so you can take advantage of it. Risk is not your friend. Risk is always your enemy. It is always your enemy, and therefore try and minimize it as much as possible. Now, just before I wrap up this episode, let me end with a brilliant quote from the great Warren Buffett. Now, he said this, uh, I think, in the 20th century, but I, I could be wrong. This is what he said, and I'll read this quote to you. It's a bit of a long quote, but bear with me. The unconventional but inescapable conclusion to be drawn from the past 50 years is that it has been far safer to invest in a diversified collection of American businesses than to invest in securities such as treasuries, for example, whose values have been tied to the American currency. That was also true in the preceding half a century, a period of including the Great Depression and two world wars. Investors should heed this history. To one degree or another, it is almost always certain to be repeated during the next century. Stock prices will always be far more volatile than cash-equivalent holdings. Over the long term, however, currency-dominated instruments are riskier instruments and investments, far riskier investments than widely diversified stock portfolios that are bought over time and that are owned in a manner invoking only token fees and commissions. That lesson has not customarily been taught in business schools, where volatility is almost universally used as a proxy for risk. Though this pedagogic, pedagogic I beg your pardon, assumption makes for easy teaching, it is dead wrong. Volatility is far from synonymous with risk. Popular formulas that equate the two terms lead students and investors and even CEOs astray. It is true, of course, that owning equities for a day or a week or a year is far riskier in both nominal and purchasing power terms than leaving funds and cash equivalents. That is relevant to certain types of investors, say investment banks, whose viability can be threatened by declines in asset prices and which might, which might be forced to sell securities during depressed markets. Additionally, any party that might have meaningful near-term needs for funds should keep appropriate sums in treasuries or insured bank deposits. For the great majority of investors, though, however, who can and should invest with a multi-decade horizon, quotational declines are unimportant. Their focus should remain fixed on attaining significant gains in purchasing power over their investing lifetime. For them, a diversified equity portfolio bought over time will prove far less risky than dollar-based securities. Now, it's a very complex way, but essentially what he's saying is invest for the long term, buy a well-diversified stock portfolio, have some emergency funds in treasuries and cash equivalents, but over time, if you do it, you're going to take advantage of volatility and you're going to minimize your risk and risk and volatility are not the same thing. That's episode 48 of Degraga Personal Finance. Now remember, I'm not a financial advisor. For financial advice, seek a professional. The aim of this podcast channel is to educate you on the basic principles of saving, investing, and other main personal finance topics. Do you have a topic request? For sure, PM me on Facebook or post your question on the Facebook forum. Um, I'll try and answer it. And if it's okay, I'll discuss about it so others can benefit in this podcast episode channel. Thanks for the questions and support so far. Keep them coming. I'm enjoying answering them to the best of my ability. Until next time, stay safe. Thank you. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.